16, verses 1 through 26. Uh, I titled this The Encouraging Words of God. And since it's 26 verses, instead of me having us all stand to read all 26 verses, I, I think some of your knees would uh, go on overload. And so what I'll do is I'm just going to pray, and then I'll jump into it, but I can promise you every verse will be read in the course of this sermon. I just know um, 26 verses is a lot to open up with. So with that, let's go to our Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into this. God, we just thank you so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that we are able to gather uh, together tonight. We thank you, Lord, like as the Israelites of old would have their morning and evening offering to you, Lord. We're able to offer the, uh, a morning worship service to you and an evening worship service, Lord, where we sing songs of praise to you, where we partake of the Lord's Supper together, and where we, uh, where we get to hear your word. So I pray you'll be with us as we dive into Genesis chapter 17, that you would give me um, just you know, the ability to preach this uh, with your power, Lord, that it'll be your word going to your people, that I won't mess it up, that you'll give us all eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word, and that you'll change us, that you'll encourage us, because part of this is a, it's a very encouraging text, um, but Lord, that you'd also stir us up to uh, obedience, Lord. And if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, we pray that you would save them and that they would come to know you. And, um, and be saved on this night. And so we just pray all this to you, God, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so all believers struggle with doubt from time to time. If you've been a believer for any amount of time, you know that. And when we struggle with doubt, we tend to distance ourselves from God's word. We refuse to be comforted by it because in that moment, we are doubting God and we're doubting his promises. Often, we're just mad at him. We're mad that God's not giving us what we want on our own terms in our own timing. And so we're being babies. It's really what it is. And the solution when you're in that mode, when you're doubting, is simply to just go back to God's word. Read his promises again and again. Read them. Believe them. Trust that God is in control and that everything happens for a reason and that his timing's better than yours anyways. It always is. As long as you go back to those truths and trust it and believe it and read the word, you'll be all right. It's when you continue to distance yourself that things get worse. Now, I bring that up because in our text, Abram was in a place of doubt at this point. He had been in a place of doubt for some time. He has made some sinful decisions based on that doubt. And most notably, you know, what we saw last time is he took another wife. And he had a child with her as if that would help God keep his promise that Abram would be the father of many descendants. Well, we saw how that worked out, didn't it? It led to a lot of problems. So this, more, this evening, in our text, many years have gone by since then. But Abram still has some doubts. They're still nagging him. Thankfully, God doesn't like to leave us in our doubt. And he won't leave Abram in his doubt. God's going to pull him out of it by telling him more about the promises. In other words, God gives him more of his word. And that's what gets Abram out of this. Okay? And so that's what we're going to see. So for you note takers, the point of the text is this. God overcomes our doubt with his word. God overcomes our doubt with his word. We're going to see that in this text with Abram here because God's going to give him five speeches. Five. Okay, it's a long chapter. God gives five speeches to Abram in this chapter to encourage him. He's going to encourage Abram. He's going to increase his trust and he's going to foster obedience. And that last thing I said is kind of like a, a secondary point to this text, right? Is that we need to be obedient to God. 
He does so much good for us, he calls on us to obey him, and we're supposed to. So yes, the point is, he encourages us, away from our doubt, with his word, he's going to do it through five speeches, it's supposed to encourage us, increase our trust, and foster obedience. So, let's just jump right into the first speech. His first speech, he promises Abram descendants. It's very simple. It kind of uh, sets the stage for everything else. Look at verse 1. It says this. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. Now, there's a couple things here that we should note. It tells us that God came to Abram when he was 99 years old. This man is almost 100. And that immediately lets us know how much time has passed since the last chapter. It has been 13 years. Chapter 16, verse 16 says that Ishmael was born to Abram in his 86th year, or when he was 86 years old. Now he's 99 years old. You do some math, 99 minus 86 is 50. No, it's 13, right? It's 13. So 13 years since that last chapter. Now, if you think about it, it's been 24 years since God called Abram to leave the land of his birth, if you will, and to move to Canaan, to pretty much uproot and move to Canaan. In that time, in that 24 years, God has spoke to Abram only a handful of times, if we actually count, okay? And in those conversations, God promised Abram some pretty big things, numerous descendants and land. In fact, what we've seen with Abram's life so far is there's a pattern that is worth noticing, that God will speak to Abram and he'll make this huge promise to him. Abram then gets encouraged by the word of God and he operates for a while with much faith. But after a period of not hearing anything from God, Abram starts to waver and he comes up with dumb plans, sinful plans that always backfire. He then comes to his senses and he repents. God then comes and speaks to him again, expanding the promise with more details. Abram then gets supercharged and he lives faithfully again until the next time he doubts again, right? That seems to be the pattern that we're seeing with him. Now, we can't excuse Abram, and I'm not trying to excuse him, but I do think we could be somewhat sympathetic with him because there was no Bible back then. He didn't have a Bible. The only word of God that Abram had is the few times that God spoke to him. Those few times. He had to take those few words and stretch them out for many years. It's different for us. See, God speaks to us every day through his word, through the Bible. Okay? It is mediated into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God Almighty, who dwells inside of us. So we have his word, we have his spirit, we never have to be in a position of not hearing for God, from God for many years. should be impossible for us. We could hear from God every time we open this up, okay? So if you haven't heard from God in a long time, it's because you're not reading his word, okay? You're not listening carefully to faithful sermons that are being preached to you, and so your dry spell is self-inflicted. Abram did not have the luxury that we have. So again, it's not to excuse Abram, but instead it's meant to convict us. We've got so much more that we can go off of. Why would we doubt? Why would we come up with dumb plans to take matters sinfully into our own hands when we got his word? At any given moment, we could turn to any part of God's word and we could be fed his encouraging promises. Now, getting back to Abram, 
God made an amazing promise to him in chapter 15. And so that's the last time he heard from God. God promised him descendants, and he promised him the land of Canaan. God even made it clear that this was a covenant. He calls it a covenant. He even made it clear that this covenant depends on God alone and not on Abram. It doesn't depend on Abram at all. Okay, And so, so that's what God shows him. And then after that comes this long period of silence. And so then Abram and his wife waver. They introduce polygamy into their marriage as if God could not fulfill the promise without their sinful plan and their help. And that only complicated their life way more. Well, Abram had to realize that he messed up. And so he's been living on the straight and narrow, but it's been 13 years now. 13 years. 13 more years and the promise is still unfulfilled and he's almost 100 years old. And in that 13 years, we have no indication that he's heard from God at all during that entire time. So God appearing to him in verse 1 of our text, that's a big deal. It's probably perfect timing. Doubt was probably running at an all-time high here. And so Abram needs encouragement. He needs to hear about the promises of God again. He needs to hear about this covenant that was mentioned in chapter 15. He needs to hear it again. It's been 13 years. And so he will hear of it. In fact, he's going to hear way more of it this time than he's heard in past conversations with God. So God appears to him, most likely in a vision, because that's how it happened before. And he starts off by saying this, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. He reminds Abram that I'm God Almighty. I'm El Shaddai. I'm the all-powerful God is what he's saying. Okay, that is what Abram called God when he allowed Abram to successfully defeat those kings of the east. He called him God Almighty. Why? Because he is the omnipotent God. And Abram knew that God was with him, that God can do anything. Okay, And so God's reminding him of that of the get-go. I am who you said I am. I am the God Almighty. I'm the God that could do anything. Okay, so he starts off that way, and then he commands Abram two things. First, he says, live in my presence. Literally, the Hebrew is translated as walk before my face. Walk before my face. Walk in my sight, in my very presence. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, the believer's life is described as a walk before God. Halakha is the verb, okay? It's a walk before God. And walking is the perfect metaphor for the believer's life. When you walk, you're either walking forward or backward. You're either taking the smooth path or a crooked path. You're either walking in the counsel of the wicked, and so you walk their paths with them, or you're walking in the counsel of the righteous, and you walk their paths with them. You either walk with God, as Adam once did in the garden, or you're walking eastward away from God, as sin eventually drove Adam, and it forced God to drive him uh, to the east. See, this word walk captures the idea that we're supposed to live wisely. It shows that our decisions matter. It shows that the life of the believer is not passive, but it's active. And so we're supposed to do what he commands. We're supposed to do what's right. Now, the second command is related. God says, be blameless. Live in my presence or walk in, my, in front of my face and be blameless. Be perfect is what that means. Now, of course, Abram has not been perfect up to this point. And he won't be perfect after this point. Nevertheless, that is God's standard. It has always been God's standard. Be holy or be perfect because I'm perfect. So how can Abram be God's chosen servant if he's not perfect and yet God commands perfection? And I think you know the answer. The answer is always the same. It's a G word. Grace. Grace. 
Okay, remember, God by himself passed through the animal pieces in Genesis 15 to display that he alone is putting the covenant upon himself. He knocked Abram out so that Abram could not pass through them so that Abram himself would never really be destroyed for his sin. Okay, and so even where Abram fails, God forgives him. Why? Because God chose him. That's the benefit of being God's elect. Now, the way God's able to do this and still be the just and justifier is God makes atonement. How he atoned for Abram, we know ultimately is going to be Jesus Christ. There's going to be some means that rolls it over until Christ paid the ultimate price. It's going to be Abram's greatest descendant that ends up ultimately saving him. But the point is, God chooses him, God forgives him because God atones for him. So with that said, though, the command, be blameless, okay, our goal is to live perfectly and never sin. That should be our goal every day. Every day we should strive for that because we know it would please God. But hear me carefully. Every day we will fail. You are going to fail, okay? And when we fail, we need to approach God's throne in humility and ask for his pardon. If we confess our sins to him, he is what? Faithful and just, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And through Christ, he will indeed continue to forgive us and thank God for that and for his grace, okay? So getting back to this, though, after announcing himself as the Almighty and commanding Abram to walk before him blameless, God then says in verse 2, he says this, he says, I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Now, there's nothing new here. This is what he said before. He's pretty much picking up where the last conversation left off, that God is reminding Abram, I made a covenant with you. I haven't forgot about it. I know it's been a while. You need to trust me. I'm going to fulfill it. Remember, I told you I'm going to give you many descendants. I'm going to multiply you. It's going to happen. So short speech, but it's the first speech, and it's reminding him, confirming what I've told you I'm going to do. Now, in the next verse, we're going to see Abram's response to the short speech. It shows faithfulness, and I'll get there in a second. But for now, just know that God speaking to Abram after all these years would be super encouraging. I don't think we think enough about God as the greatest encourager, but he is. God is the king of encouragement. So read his word more. Pay close attention to how he deals with his servants, and you will start to see it like, wow, look how often God encourages his people. And then you'll know he encourages you as well. But anyway, the second speech is going to follow right after this one. It's a little longer. God's going to expand on the promise about descendants and the land. So let's take a look. In verse 3, Moses writes this. He says, then Abram fell face down, and God spoke with him. Okay. Now, the first part of that, Abram fell face down, that shows his faithful response. God says, I'm with you. I'm going to keep the covenant. Abram falls down. He knows that God is God. He knows that Abram's not God. The mere fact that God would come down and speak to him is enough for Abram to fall flat on his face in reverence and say, this is my God. Okay. That shows the posture of a humble heart. I pray that we all have that before our Lord. Okay, now the second part of this now lets us know God's beginning a new speech. Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. So let's look next at verse 4 and see what God starts to say. Here's what he says. He says, as for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Now at this point, it's definitely an expansion of what God said in the past. In the past, he said, your descendants will be innumerable. Now he's telling them, there's going to be many nations that come from you. 
distinct people groups, each carving their place out in the world, they will be descended from you. Now bear in mind, Abram's nearly a hundred years old at this point. This seems impossible. But for God, is anything too, too far for him to reach? Is there anything too mighty for his hand? No, nothing's impossible for God, okay? So God says more about this than in verse five. He says, your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. Now, the Bible often will tell us the meanings of people's names and why they're significant. But this is the first time that God changes a man's name. Abram means exalted father. By adding one letter in Hebrew, Abraham changes the meaning to father of many. Okay, so not, he's not just an exalted father, he's the father of many. God's saying, I'm not just going to make you a father, I'm going to make you a father of so many that a significant number of the world's population will look at you as their father or ancestor. And listen, nearly one-third of the earth's population right now looks back to Abraham as a father, either in a physical way or a spiritual way, but billions of people look back to this guy. So this has been fulfilled. And I have to say, that I'm glad that the name change has finally happened because I was kind of getting tired of calling him Abram. You know, now for the rest of the Bible, he's Abraham. So I've been waiting for this day since I've been going through Genesis, right? Now, in verse six, God expands the promise of the text even further. He says, I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. So he's saying you're not just going to be fruitful, you're going to be extremely fruitful. It's not just nations that are going to come from you, even kings. And by the way, this shows that from the very beginning, God planned on Israel having a king. Kingship is God's idea. Now, the way Israel asks for it was wrong. But right here, it's clear God always intended for eventually there to be his king over Israel. Okay? Now, Abraham's most important descendant is going to be a king, and not just any king, but the king of kings. He will even be Abraham's savior. Now, in verse 7, God makes it clear that this covenant is with Abraham to make him fruitful and to make nations and kings. That's all going to come from him, but not just Abraham. It's going to be past his descendants. This is, just, this is not just a covenant with Abraham. Look at verse 7. God says, I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. Now, this is a fascinating promise. And it's one that Christians, unfortunately, have downplayed for millennia. See, the covenant with Abraham is not just with Abraham. It's with all the generations of his offspring. And it is talking about physical offspring here. This is what it means, right? This is, this is not with all the nations that are going to come from him, but only one nation. The rest of Genesis will show that, that it's going to be passed to Isaac. Even our text is going to tell us that the covenant passes to Isaac. And then we know when we get near the end of Isaac's life, it passes to Jacob, which is Israel, right? So God is promising to he, this covenant he's confirming with Abraham. He says, I'm also passing it on to Isaac, Jacob, and all their descendants, all their generations. That's what he says. It's going to be throughout their generations. Now, Christians often have no problem with this if it can be limited to the Old Testament. They have no problem with this if we could say it's abrogated at the arrival of Christ. They have no problem with this if we can say that the church has replaced Israel and that his covenant's now done with Israel. 
But our text makes all that impossible. Notice that God says this. He says, it is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. Now, this is the most important aspect of the covenant. The core aspect of the covenant is the promise, I will be your God. I will be the God of your offspring after you. This is more important than land, than nations, than kings. This is the promise of God himself. Abraham, you and your offspring get me. What more is there than that? That's what you get. Now, the second most important aspect of the covenant tells us how long the covenant lasts. The first part of that sentence answers where God says it is a permanent covenant. The covenant to be their God, God is saying is permanent. Now, honestly, translating this as permanent does not do it justice. Because in Hebrew, the words are liberit olam, which means eternal covenant everlasting covenant. It doesn't just mean permanent because Albert could give me a watch and say, oh, you have it the rest of your life. That's permanent. But when I die, I don't take it with me. If he said, this is your watch eternally, I'd be like, bro, you can't give me an eternal watch, but thanks for the gesture. But if God gives something eternal, that means it lasts forever. This is liberit olam, the everlasting eternal covenant. In fact, three times in this chapter, it will tell us the covenant is eternal. And so it blows my mind that people will say it can't mean that. That's what it has to mean, because that's what the words actually mean. Don't try to correct the text with your theology, but let the text correct your theology. Otherwise, you're doing it backwards, okay? So God promises Abraham nations and kings and one nation that with Abraham will share in an everlasting covenant with God. In verse 8, the land of Canaan is then part of this eternal covenant. Look at verse 8. God says, and to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, very specific, right? All the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. So again, he repeats, I'll be their God, and he repeats there's an eternal aspect of this covenant. I mean, what are you going to do with that? This land, specifically the land of Canaan, is going to be Abraham's and his descendants, and it's going to be theirs as a permanent or eternal possession. And as I said, the word permanent just doesn't do it justice. The Hebrew here is laha, or it's la'ahuzat olam, an eternal possession. Okay, and so again, very clear, what's the eternal possession? Canaan. If God says this so clearly, then why do so many believers claim that God no longer cares about the land of Canaan? Why do they say God doesn't care anymore about giving Israel the land? And I'll tell you, there's a few reasons why a lot of believers arrive there. First, they understand rightly that the church will inherit the whole world. That's what we've been promised. We're going to get the whole world. Okay, And so what is a piece of land in the Middle East, Canaan, what is it compared to us getting the whole world? In the Old Testament, God's attention was particular. He focused on a particular people in a particular land. Now he focuses on a universal people, people of every nation all over the whole globe, which is a universal land. And so given the universal scope of the gospel, they argue that God does not deal with particulars anymore. But here's, there's a few problems with this logic. First, it is ancient Greek philosophy that said particulars don't matter. And they say only universals matter. That comes from Plato. 
Again, not the non-toxic stuff you used to play with and eat as a kid. Plato the philosopher, Platonism as it's called. Platonism said you got particulars, they don't matter. What matters are the universals, okay? And the early church fell in love with what was called middle Platonism. And so to them, they'd say, well, Israel is a particular, but the church is a universal, and the universal is all that matters. Now, Western civilization has carried that idea ever since, but listen, the Bible is not beholden to Greek philosophy. The Bible always pulls and holds things together in tension. For example, the Bible teaches us that God is nowhere, but God is everywhere, right? The Bible teaches us that God is transcendent, meaning he's entirely beyond and outside of our reality, beyond and outside of our universe, but then it says he's imminent. He fills our universe, God decrees all that comes to pass, we're told. But then people make moral decisions, and they're responsible for those decisions. We're told that God is one. Shema, right? The Shema, or God, is one. Shema uh, Yisrael, right? God is one. But then we're told God is many, meaning he's three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're told that the Savior is God. But we're also told that the Savior is man. All these antinomies, that's, that's the technical word, or paradoxes, a less technical word, these defy the hyper-universalism of Greek, Greek philosophy. And they also defy the hyper-particularism of the ancient Jews. See, the ancient Jews were only particularists. The Greeks, only universalists. And the scripture actually defies both of those. God saves both the particular and the universal. God has an everlasting covenant with one nation, Israel, but also through that covenant, he saves every nation. It's both. God gives one particular land to Israel as an eternal possession, yet he gives the whole world to the nations as an eternal possession, the nations that believe on him, right? So my point is you don't have to deny one in order to hold the other. To say, well, if it's universal, there's no point for a particular. The Bible doesn't give us that option. That's a demand of Greek philosophy, not a demand of the Bible. The Bible tells us hold both together. You got two hands. Hold one in each hand. Now, one reason people have a hard time seeing this is because they continually redefine Israel as the church. And there's some truth to that, right? The Bible, it, but there's no nuance to that when they say it that way. The Bible instead presents the church as the body of the Messiah in which Jews and Gentiles together are co-heirs. But the body is defined in Romans 11 as Israel having believing Gentiles added to it or grafted onto it, right? Paul goes out of his way to say Israel, true Israel is the remnant of believing Jews. That's the tree supported by the roots of the patriarchs. And the believing Gentiles are grafted onto that tree of Israel. Unbelieving Jews are grafted off. They're torn off. And so then what happens is you have this minority of Jews, but you have a majority of Gentiles being grafted onto the tree. Okay, that's what it's described as. And that will happen until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Okay, but then what's going to happen is when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, the hardening of Israel's heart will be lifted, and then the fullness of the Jews will come in. And now you're going to have this tree with the fullness of Israel, fullness of Gentiles, all grafted into the one tree. So in, in a sense, is the church Israel? Yes, Gentiles are grafted into Israel, but they don't replace Israel. Okay? And, and that's the point. The way you describe it matters. Otherwise, you're going to get it wrong. You got to describe it biblically. Okay. Now, here's the thing. 
<clears throat> you got the fullness of Jews that get saved. You got the fullness of Gentiles get saved. Together they inherit the whole world. Yet that doesn't mean that God still doesn't portion out the territory on a national basis. Just read Zechariah 14 sometime. I mean, that's about the perfect age to come. Okay, after Messiah returns, and there's still nations, there's still boundaries, there's still Israel. Okay, so to, to say that this all disappears, even in the book of Revelation, before the throne, after the tribulation, it's every nation, tribe, and tongue before him waving their branches. Those distinctions don't disappear. We're all one in Christ. And I think it glorifies God more that way. Okay, so my point is the church getting the whole world and Jews in the church getting the land of Canaan, these are not contradictory ideas. They're complementary. But people, again, they just don't like the idea. They want to make it simpler. We have to make everything simpler. Why? Says who? Plato? He could have his simplicity. I want what the Bible says. Okay? And so people who want to make it too simple, they go and spiritualize all those, those Old Testament promises and just say, well, it's all an allegory. And then they ignore what the text clearly says, such as this land is an eternal possession for ethnic Israel. And so I just say as an exhortation, folks need to knock it off and just let the word of God speak. Accept what God says. If your confession or your creed gets it wrong, don't double down on it. Instead, correct it. Semper reformanda, always reforming by the word of God. Isn't that how we're supposed to be? And so hopefully uh, we will be that way. So I think I've said enough about that. That's one of a couple soapboxes I have to get on in this text. Um, and that's only the second speech, right? That's only the second speech. God's going to now roll immediately into the third speech. And here is where he's going to make it clear that even though this covenant is by grace and it all depends on God, the recipients of the covenant are expected to obey God's commands. There's obedience that's going to be commanded here. Listen, salvation is not conditioned upon works. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace through faith. And Genesis 15, 6 said that Abraham was justified by faith, okay? But one thing that will show your faith is true is whether or not there's works, okay? So let's look at the third speech to see that. Verse 9 starts the speech off. It says, God also said to Abraham... As for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. Now, that's pretty clear. God gives the covenant, but he also says you have to keep my covenant. Now, he's saying there's things that I'm going to command of you and your descendants, and my expectation is that you keep them. Now, some people have been conditioned to think that God requires nothing of us. What they're doing is they're confusing the fact that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. They're confusing that fact with this idea where, where God makes no demands. But God makes all sorts of demands. Haven't you ever read the Bible? I mean, yeah, our salvation doesn't come from works, but God gives his people a lot of commands. Even in the New Testament, he commands us to do a lot of good things. Do you think he commanded those for no reason? Or do you think they're there for a reason? Look, if he saved you by grace, he's made you part of his special people. And if he's done that, then there's commands that he expects you to obey because he's made you part of his special people. Our relationship with God is in the context of a covenant. He saved us with a mighty hand. He made us his people, and therefore he expects us to live before him as his people. 
okay? That, that, that's what we're seeing here. Now, for Christians, that means to obey all the commands that are given to us in the New Testament. And I would also add we're supposed to obey all the commands in the Old Testament that are timeless and that are more universal in nature, not the ones that are tied to the land or the temple. But there's Old Testament commands that you just know are timeless. And so we keep those. Now, for Abraham and his ethnic descendants, God has something very specific in mind. And I'm so glad it happens when we're babies. Look at verses 10 through 13. God says, This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. Now, every covenant in the Bible has a sign. Noah's covenant had the rainbow as a sign. Moses' covenant, or the Mosaic covenant, had the Shabbat, or Sabbath, as the sign. The Davidic covenant, the covenant with David, had a son as the sign. And the new covenant has baptism as the sign. Well, the Abrahamic covenant has circumcision as the sign. Verse 13 was clear with this. My covenant will be marked in your flesh. The sign's always visible. Okay, and so this is something that's visible in the flesh. In other words, it will be signified in the flesh itself. And notice again, it's a permanent covenant. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as what? As a laborit olam, an everlasting or eternal covenant. That means the covenant of circumcision lasts forever. And that might have felt like I scratched some chalkboards there for a second. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Okay? There's just a few details about circumcision worth stating here. The Israelites were not the only ones in the ancient Near East that practiced this. Some Canaanites were circumcised. The Egyptian priests, and only the Egyptian priests, were circumcised. The difference with Israel is every male was to be circumcised. And so this paints the picture then, if in Egypt only the priests of the highest strata get circumcised, this paints the picture that all God's people are priests. Not just the people at the top of the society. Whether you're small or great, rich or poor, this is something you inherit, especially since it comes from birth. It comes from Abraham and it goes to his offspring. So this is something that they inherit just by virtue of being born as Abraham's descendant. You're born into this covenant of Abraham in some respect. Now you could be cut off from it as we're going to see. Okay, And that's not talking about losing salvation. I'll I'll try to clear that up in 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 a little bit. Um, There's people who are visibly part of a covenant who are never saved, okay? But I'll come back to that when I get to Ishmael. Um, If if you were a foreigner and you were owned by an Israelite, it also says you were drafted into this covenant. And so for all aspects and all strata of the Israelite society, this was to be done. And if you were born into that society, it was to be done on the eighth day. And I'll tell you why a little later. The eighth day is significant. I'm definitely glad it's not on the 13th year like it was for Ishmael, okay? But, but definitely the, the eighth day, there's a reason for it. Now, God was so serious 
about this requirement of circumcision that look what he says in verse 14. He says, if any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, of course, it's not the baby's fault, right? That's the parent's fault. But let's say the child comes of age, that child needs to make a decision, right? And if he doesn't, he's broken the covenant and he's to be cut off. So there's an object lesson here. And, and there's a word play here, okay? If you won't cut off the foreskin, then God will cut off you, is what he's saying. See, the foreskin, not to get too graphic, but it was cut off and it was discarded from the rest of the body. The Israelite that refuses circumcision is then to be cut off from Israel. which They're discarded from the national body of God's people, right? So this was a serious deal, okay? It was a serious deal. And so I hope that God's words here can make you appreciate the dilemma that the early church faced in Acts chapter 15. We go to Acts chapter 15 and we're so quick to think that the Jews in Jerusalem that believed in Jesus, that were demanding circumcision, they must have just been idiots. How could they be so stupid to think people need to be circumcised? They must have been legalistic. I don't think it was legalism that was driving them at this point. I don't think it's that at all. They took Genesis 17 for exactly what it said. It says this covenant is eternal. There's no indication in their mind that it's going to stop. It says that the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision, is also eternal. And it says that anyone who won't do it is cut off from the people. To simply blow over this is not to treat the Old Testament with the respect it deserves. See, Paul... In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he's talking about the Old Testament when he says all scriptures God breathed and it's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training us for righteousness. Now, it also includes the New Testament, but when Paul wrote that, he was talking about the Old. So we can't just treat the Old Testament like it's nothing. We have to, to think about this. Now, there are some people who try to respect what it says. They try to respect the claim that the sign is eternal, but the way they do it doesn't work. And here's what I mean. Going back to this, this idea I already brought up, they claim that the church has replaced Israel, and so that and since the church's covenant sign is baptism, they say baptism replaces circumcision. So they agree that the sign is eternal, but they're saying what it looks like today is baptism. See, with the church, God moved from the particular to the universal, so now there's a better, more universal sign, baptism, that's replaced circumcision. And, to, and you might say, well, where do they get this from? How do they make this work? Well, they claim that God instituted one single covenant of grace that exists from Adam all the way to now. And all the covenants that are mentioned in the Bible, covenants that, that show salvation, they're all just different outworkings of that one covenant of grace. And so they're saying right now, the covenant of grace is in the form of the new covenant. And the covenant signed baptism is now the only one that exists. The other ones don't exist. They've been fulfilled. But here's the thing, that doesn't work for a lot of reasons. First, I think you're on, on flimsy sand, flimsy soil, a, a not solid footing. You're, you're on the soil rather than the rock when you claim that the covenants that are actually named in Scripture are really just part of one covenant that's never named in Scripture. It's kind of, kind of backward. You're going to get things wrong if that's how you're doing your theology, okay? And, and one thing that they get wrong is they'll use that as a theological explanation of why they think baptism replaces circumcision, okay? If baptism replaced circumcision, don't you think Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council would have been the perfect time to say it? 
Don't you think the apostles would be like, wait a minute, here's why they don't have to be circumcised. They've been, they've been baptized. And that covers it because that's replaced it. That doesn't even come up as an argument in the whole Jerusalem council. The thought doesn't even come up in their mind. Okay, It's on different grounds that they're saying that the, the, the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. Okay, and, and then furthermore, you have to ask yourself, is there any passage of Scripture that explicitly teaches that baptism replaces circumcision? There's not one. There's not one. Okay, not even one. So what's happening is, again, they're imposing their theology on the Scripture in a way that demands things that the biblical text never says. Now, I appreciate their, what they're trying to do. They're trying to um, give Genesis 17 the respect it deserves, okay? But the way they're doing it, uh, it isn't working. So if they're wrong, then how does this work? Simply put, if the Gentiles that came to Christ had to be circumcised, they would no longer be Gentiles, would they? They would be Jews. If you're a Gentile and you get circumcised and you're keeping yourself under the law of Moses, you're now a Jew. You're a proselyte, but you're considered a Jew. That's not what the Old Testament promised. The Old Testament from Abraham all the way through the prophets promised that in the age of the Messiah, the nations, the goyim or the Gentiles would be drawn into the perfect age to come and they would inherit the world with Israel. It never says they become Israelites. It says they inherit inherit it with Israel, not as Israel, okay? They're going to inherit it with Israel, okay? For the nations to still be the nations, for Gentiles to still be Gentiles, they cannot become Israelites. Otherwise, they would cease to be Gentiles. So the Old Testament's own prediction of Gentile salvation, while they're still Gentiles, excludes circumcision being a part of it. And the fact that the Holy Spirit gets poured out on the Gentiles at the moment of belief proves that circumcision is not a requirement for them. And that's the whole argument that Peter makes and Paul makes, that the Spirit of God came on them the moment they believed. So they don't need to be circumcised, right? So then, that's what the Scripture teaches, okay? But then we still have to deal with, well, then what does it mean that it's an everlasting covenant? Well, pretty much you have to ask, who is it an everlasting covenant for? It's for Abraham's physical offspring and them only. Do you know that there's nothing in the New Testament that tells the Jews to stop circumcising their kids? People assume that, never says that. I'm actually going to prove to you that it tells you that's not the case, okay? Paul gets accused falsely of teaching that Jews need to stop circumcising and stop keeping um, Torah. And at the, Jerusalem, at the Jerusalem church, in effect, says, Paul, we know it's not true. Check this out. Let's look at uh, Acts chapter 21, verses 21 through 25. This is James, the head of the Jerusalem church, the, the half-brother of Jesus. He's saying this to Paul. And this is near the end of Paul's life, too. This isn't early in Paul's uh, biblical career or whatever. So here's what James says. He says, but they have been informed about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. So what's to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, pay for them to get their heads shaved, then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we've written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, and from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now that is pretty clear. 
just summarizing it, he said, we already told the Gentiles, they don't have to keep the law. They just have to keep those four things that, that, that we wrote them about. They don't have to keep the law, okay, including circumcision. But you, Paul, we, he says, we know you're careful about keeping it. We already know you're careful. You think James is lying? And if, if Paul didn't agree, do you think Paul would then go along with what James is saying? But he does go along with what James is saying. Okay, And they're saying, we know it's not true that you're telling the Jews that live among the Gentiles to stop circumcising. We know it's not true. So do this to prove to everybody it's not true. That way they'll start, stop their rumors. Okay, And what that tells me is that Jewish believers should still circumcise their kids. I know it's hard for us to think that way because we've been conditioned to thinking, no, 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 it's the Gentiles who shouldn't, right? But it makes sense if Genesis 17 says it's an eternal covenant and this is an eternal sign of the covenant for Abraham's physical offspring, those who are born into his household, so it's to be done on the eighth day, then it makes sense that Jews would would do this. And by the way, it keeps the Jews Jewish. It keeps the Jews Jewish so that the church can visibly show Jew and Gentile in one body with the wall come down, being one body co-heirs equals in Christ. But if the Jews have to stop being Jewish and stop all these things, then how are you going to know they're Jews? They're going to just become Gentiles, right? But it's like the same thing as if the Gentiles get circumcised, they stop being Gentiles. They become Jews. That's not Christ's Christ's goal. His goal isn't for all of us to be a Gentile church or all of us to be a Jewish church. His goal is for both to be visible in one body. He's building something much better than what, what we want to do. We always want to demand uniformity. That's not what he's doing. So then the question is, okay, so the Jews then who believe in Jesus should still circumcise their sons. So the question is, what if you have a Jew that doesn't get circumcised? The text said he gets cut off from Israel, right? So what happens? Okay, let's say you have a Jew who's uncircumcised. He's ethnically Jewish. Uncircumcised. He comes to faith in Christ and wants to identify himself as a Jewish believer in Christ. I'm telling you, I think he should get circumcised. If he doesn't, is he doomed? No, of course not. Okay, circumcision doesn't matter at all when it comes to salvation. But if he opts out, he's opting out of being a Jew, is all I'm saying. He's opting out of being a Jewish Christian. He's being cut off from Israel. Now, that doesn't hurt his salvation because guess what? He comes as a Gentile and gets grafted on by faith alone, just like everybody else. It's not a problem, but for him to claim the identity of Jew when he's defying the eternal covenant just doesn't make any sense. Now, he doesn't have to keep it. There's nothing that says you have to be circumcised, but I'm just saying if you're going to walk around with a yarmulke and be singing Hava Nagila, it's only going to make sense if you are circumcised, okay? Now, sometimes people will object and they'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, since it says that circumcision and uncircumcision don't matter. And so they say, since it doesn't matter, Jews shouldn't circumcise. But if you read that chapter closely, the context of the way circumcision and uncircumcision is being used is it's not talking about the act of circumcision. Circumcision is being used as a circumlocution of Jew. I had to do that little pun. I know it was dorky. I know nobody got it. But a circumlocution is just you're using a word to stand in the place of another word. So pretty much Paul in that case uses the word circumcision to mean Jew and uncircumcision to mean Gentile. He's not talking about the act of circumcision there. He's saying circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing, meaning being Jewish and being Gentile mean nothing. What matters is being in Christ. 
What matters is keeping Christ's command. And with that, we should wholeheartedly agree. If for salvation, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you're the uncircumcised or the circumcised. But that passage not, is not telling you that the act of circumcision doesn't mean anything for Jews. Okay? It has nothing to do with what we're talking about here. Now, I'm hoping I didn't add confusion to all this. I might have, and if I did, well, blame Albert. No, anyway, just kidding. Um, no, my fault for not explaining it well. But, um, but there's one more thing from this third speech that does require comment, okay? Some people think that James and Paul are in disagreement over justification by faith. And they try to use the text of Genesis 17 for that because they try to use James chapter 2 to say that, that, that he's using Genesis different than Paul. But they're not. Paul makes a very specific argument. And so I, I want us to look at Romans chapter nine verses, or Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12 really quickly. Paul says, is this blessing, meaning justification by faith, is this blessing only for the circumcised then, meaning Jews, or is it also for the uncircumcised, Gentiles? He says, for we say, faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. He quoted Genesis 15, 6 there. Okay? In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised, okay? And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he still was uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. Now, I think it's very clear there, Jews who are circumcised, Gentiles who are uncircumcised, they stay as they are, but they both have the faith of Abraham. And it's that faith that we're justified by. Okay, so Paul points out that Abraham was justified, according to Genesis 15, 6, over a decade before he got circumcised. Think about it. The command to get circumcised is in Genesis 17. Abram was declared righteous by faith in Genesis 15. This is years before. So Paul is taking the text and saying, take it in order. It matters. When did God justify him? Chapter 15. When did he get circumcised? Chapter 17. Well, circumcision doesn't justify you then. It can't. You're justified by faith before it. And so Paul makes a brilliant argument there, and James isn't disagreeing with it. Okay, Paul makes it clear in other places, like Ephesians 2.10, that real Christians will do good works. James is correcting the people who say Christians don't have to do any works, that we could just believe, but then live our life like total heathens. And he's saying even demons believe in God, and they shudder. So he says faith without works is dead, but what he's saying, Paul would agree with. Okay, imagine Abraham here. What if Abraham refused to obey this command? What if God said, hey, I'm now going to give all this to you. I need you to get circumcised. And Abraham's like, no, I'm not doing that. I'll tell you where to take your circumcision or whatever. Would that, I mean, if Abraham said that, does he have faith? No, he's rejecting the faith. He's telling God, I'm not going to do what you said. I don't have to do what you said. I refuse. The very fact that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness means that the faith of Abraham is going to listen to the commands of God. Maybe not perfectly, but he's going to listen to the commands of God. Abraham would think, hey, God promised he's going to make nations and kings from me and one nation that's going to have this eternal covenant. He promises this land of Canaan as an eternal possession. And you know what? I believe him. 
Oh, he's telling me to get circumcised as an almost 100-year-old man to and then to pass this on to my kid? You got it. I believe everything this God says. See, the circumcision doesn't save them, but the faith that saves them is what leads to that circumcision. Okay, that's my point. Okay, that's my point. True saving faith leads to this kind of obedience. It's very simple. You have a root and you have fruit. So if you say that you have an orange tree, but it's producing plums, I'm sorry, you don't have an orange tree. If you say you have salvation and the faith that saves, but it does not produce the fruit of repentance and the fruit of good works, then do you have that salvation? Again, the works don't save you. They just prove that you have the salvation. Anyhow, with that, let's now look at the fourth speech. This one is short and sweet. In fact, all the rest are short and sweet. This one reveals that doubt has crept into Abraham's heart. So look at verses 15 and 16 really quickly. It says, God said to Abraham, As for your wife Sarai, don't, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give, her a son, I'll give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Now, that's pretty simple, right? Sarah's part of this promise, too. Abraham, it's not just you that's going to have kids. You're going to have the promised child through her. And just like I changed your name, I'm going to change hers. Now, Sarah's name change is peculiar because with Abraham's, it changed the meaning. But Sarai and Sarah mean exactly the same thing. The first one is how you would say her name if you lived east of the Euphrates River. And Sarah is how you'd say it if you live west of the Euphrates River, which is where they were living now. So my guess is this is God's way of saying you're no longer part of the people from which you came. You are now something different. You're something new. It's the only thing I could think of with that name change. And God promises to bless her, that kings and nations will come from her. Now, at this point, God's then going to say, uh, no more. Abraham, at this point, kind of interrupts, and he speaks his doubt. Once Sarah is brought up, his wife, that's when he just doesn't see how this is possible. Look at verses 17 and 18. They say, Abraham fell face down. Then he laughed and said to himself, can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. See, Abraham just doesn't see how this is possible. He's still reverential to God. He's not being spiteful or snarky. He fell on his face before God, but he's got doubt here. And I want to tell you something about doubt. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. There is a difference, okay? Faith fully believes God can do what he says, right? Unbelief rejects that. It says God can't do what he says, right? So faith, he can. Unbelief, he can't, right? So unbelief rejects God. It rejects God's claims. Doubt tries to straddle between the two. In other words, doubt comes from those who believe God. They have faith, but their faith is weak. Their circumstances are bigger in their mind than their faith is, and so they believe that God can, but they doubt that he will. That's what doubting is, okay? And I love how God deals with doubt among believers. He does not bite our head off. Remember when Abraham doubted in chapter 15? And said, how are you going to bless me? My servant's going to be my heir. And then God didn't yell at him. He didn't like force choke him or anything like that. Instead, he encouraged him by repeating the promise. 
He said, you're wrong, Abraham. Your heir, Eleazar of Damascus, is not going to be the one who inherits everything. It won't be your servant. It will be your son that will come from your own loins. Look at the stars. That is how numerous your descendants will be. I promise you this. And we're going to see the same thing here. So when Abram back then doubted, God just repeated the promise with more. When Abraham doubts here, God's going to repeat the promise again with even more and overcome his doubt. This makes me think of how Jesus dealt with his disciples. I mean, Peter had enough faith to walk on the water for a little bit, but then the wind scared him and he sank and he shouted, save me. And then Jesus does and pulls him up and he says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? He didn't bite his head off. He just says, why did you doubt? He tells them later that with the faith of a mustard seed, you could do great things. When Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection, Luke chapter 24, verses 38 and 39, he's alive, resurrected before them, and he says, he asks, why do doubts arise in your heart? He asks them, why are doubts arising in your heart? Touch me and see that I'm not a ghost. Look at my wounds, feel them, believe. See, again, how does Jesus correct their doubt? By biting their head off or inviting them to examine him? and showing them that, no, I have been victorious. Stop doubting, right? And so our doubts are corrected by God reassuring us with the truth, with what we already believe deep down. And seeing how God does this again and again with his people, it really makes me love him a thousand times more because I doubt too at times. He's so good to us. He comforts us like a father holds and comforts a little scared child. That's how God deals with us. He's so good. And I do think that's how we need to deal with each other when we're doubting. When somebody's doubting, you don't admonish them. You admonish the idle. You strengthen the weak, okay? And so how does God help those who doubt just like this? And that's how we need to be there for each other when brothers and sisters are doubting. Now, God is going to do this. He's going to reassure Abraham in the final speech. Abraham is scared to be let down. The promise seems more impossible now than it was before. Before he was 75, now he's almost 100. This just seems impossible. So he's like, use Ishmael. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. But God says, no, no. Just like he did in chapter 15, it's not going to be your servant. It's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be somebody else. And so let's look at the final speech and see God reassure Abraham by promising Isaac is the heir. God gives a very hard stop to Abraham's idea. Look at verse 19. Moses writes this. He says, but God said, no, your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. Now, that first word, no, it's not really the Hebrew word for no. It's a word, aval, and it's meant to indicate a reversal of expectations. So sometimes you'll translate it as no. It's really like, no, hard stop, Abraham, you're wrong. It's not Ishmael. Let me correct that thinking right now. That's what aval um, refers to, okay? So he's saying, listen, no, your expectation's wrong. It's not going to be Ishmael. Sarah will have a son. And right now, I'm telling you his name, even before he's conceived. His name is Yitzhak or Isaac, which means laughter. You just laughed right now in disbelief. But my friend, you will be laughing with joy when you hold that baby in your arms. I'm going to redeem even your doubtful laugh and turn it into a laugh of joy. His name will be laughter. And that 
is the boy that this covenant is going to pass on to. And he says it will be permanent at the end of verse 19, this covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. Okay, so it's a permanent eternal covenant to Isaac, but not just to him, to his offspring, to Jacob. Okay, the very thing I'm telling you, Abraham, I'm going to give to him, and it's not going to Ishmael. But at the same time, Ishmael is Abraham's son, and God wants Abraham to still know that Ishmael is going to be blessed on Abraham's account. He might not be the son of promise that gets an eternal covenant, but he will be blessed. Look at verse 20. God says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. He will father 12 tribal leaders and I will make him into a great nation. So really, Ishmael is going to be like a doppelganger to Israel. He's going to multiply. He's going to have 12 tribes. He's even going to be a great nation, but he's not going to be the son of the covenant. By God's grace, however, just to let you know, even though Ishmael, the Ishmaelites are not sons of the covenant, through Christ Jesus, they're brought into the covenant. They're grafted in. So even not being having the covenant passed to them, they could still be saved just like anybody else. Our God is so awesome. The work of our Messiah is so awesome. Now, in verse 21, God makes it clear that though the covenant, he makes it clear that the covenant is for Isaac. He says, but I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. Now, I think that the final statement from God right here is the doubt killer. For nearly 25 years, God has been telling Abraham that this is going to happen, but he never told him when. You just have to be faithful. You just have to believe. And that's why after a long time, Abraham doubts. But now God is specific. He says, this time next year. That's right around the corner. No time to doubt anymore. Your wife, your 90-year-old wife is going to be pregnant in three months. I just love how God takes care of his guy like this. It's so encouraging. When Abraham finally needs it most, look, one year, buddy, one year, and you're going to be holding your own son born through Sarah. Now, God ends on that most encouraging note. And so then verse 22 says, when he finished talking with him, God withdrew from Abraham. So he ends on that high note. And so then the question is, the final question is, what does Abraham do with this? Does he respond in faith? Does his faith produce faithfulness? Let's finish the text. Let's look at verses 23 through 26. It says, so Abraham took his son Ishmael and those born in his household or purchased every male among the members of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, just as God said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. And his son Ishmael was 13 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. On that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his household, whether born in his household or purchased from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Abraham obeyed the command to the detail. And this certainly shows faith, does it not? A 99-year-old man taking a flint blade to the very part of his body that the promise depends on? That's faith. That's faith. He did this without question. And he made everyone else in his household do it as well. You know, even if I picture somebody like, come on, Abe, he's like, you're doing it. You know, the point is, he's obeying God. He's obeying God. He's, he's not going to um, disobey God. And so an interesting note, though, and I, and I wanted to come back to this, is notice Ishmael, as a 13-year-old, he received the sign of the covenant. Yet 
He was not a son of the covenant. He was not inside the covenant. And I bring that up to say that because just because the mere fact you have the sign of the covenant, it doesn't actually place you in the covenant, right? Now, without the sign, you're not in it, but having it doesn't guarantee you're in it. See, instead, circumcision of the heart is what keeps you in the covenant, right? That's what puts you in the covenant. And I say this because many of our Presbyterian brothers who are great thinkers, but they think that baptizing their babies puts them inside the covenant because they say, now we got the covenant sign on them. But only faith places somebody inside the covenant. Only faith, right? And so many, there were many circumcised Israelites that were not saved over the course of history because they didn't have the circumcised heart. And, uh, and, and so is the sign important? Absolutely. Just like baptism is important. The sign is huge, okay? Must it be obeyed? Absolutely. But don't confuse the sign with the very thing that it signifies, Baptism, which isn't for babies anyways, signifies the new birth. It signifies the forgiveness of sins that come by faith, okay? But again, it comes by faith, not by the baptism. Circumcision signifies the new heart, the circumcised heart that also comes by faith. In both cases, if there's not genuine faith, cutting off a foreskin or being dunked in water does you no good. The sign of the covenant can save no one. But when there is genuine faith, then the sign of the covenant is a powerful testimony, an object lesson of God's amazing grace and unending love. Okay? So I wanted to make sure that was explained. So with that, we are now done with another major text in Genesis. Given that that God made the covenant in chapter 15, though, sometimes people ask, well, wait a second, all this, he gives the covenant in chapter 15, and what makes chapter 17 necessary, okay? Well, it's a meaningful progression. And here's what I mean. In chapter 15, the word covenant comes up only once. It's mentioned one time. Here, it's mentioned 13 times, okay? Uh, Three times we're told the covenant is eternal. We're told that the land promise is is, is eternal as well. And finally, we're given the sign of the covenant, and all biblical covenants have signs. And so this was a necessary chapter that expands and builds on what was said in chapter 15. Now, the fact that every covenant has a sign, that is one key in how you can now see Christ in this passage, because remember, Christ said the whole volume of scriptures about him. You should be able to see him here. And the fact that that all the covenants have a sign, including this one, that's where you're going to see Christ. First and foremost, think of all the covenant signs. Noah's covenant had the rainbow, the promise that God would never wipe out all of humanity again. Okay, The rainbow is God's sign of peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the one who the Father poured out his wrath, the full flood and cup of his wrath upon Jesus on the cross so that God could then be at peace with us. Jesus is what the rainbow pointed to all along. Jesus is the reason why God could have a bow with no arrow at us because Jesus took that arrow for us. So we have eternal peace with God because Christ is our rainbow. Abraham's sign, circumcision, the sign is cut flesh. It signifies the new heart that only Christ brings, but it also represents Christ being cut off in a bloody crucifixion and discarded into the grave so that in him we would never be cut off and never be discarded from God. Christ taking our punishment for us so we are forever cleansed and circumcised in our hearts. This points to him. Moses' sign of the Sabbath indicates rest What does Hebrews say about Jesus? He is our eternal rest. 
and it's through him that we enter the perfect age to come, which is all rest. David's sign was the sign of a son. Jesus is what? The son, right? He's the sign that Ahaz refused to ask for, that the virgin will be, will be with child and he will be called God with us. So Jesus is the son of David. He is the house of David that God promised to, to build. And it's in Jesus, the true son, that we will inherit the world. And then finally, the sign of the new covenant, baptism. We know what that, we know that's about Christ. It's about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So clearly, all the covenants are important, as are all the covenant signs. Because one way or another, every covenant sign points to Jesus. They all tell us about Jesus. Circumcision's no different. And that's why I say when people are like, well, Christ fulfilled those other ones, so all we need is baptism now. He fulfilled baptism as well because he died, he was buried, and he rose on the third day. Does that mean you don't look at the rainbows anymore and thank God for that? Well, Jesus fulfilled it, so I'm not thanking God for a rainbow anymore. No, right? It's the same with all these. None of these, these signs have disappeared. A day of rest is still a way that we're able to thank God for the eternal rest that's going to come. So I'm just saying, people have some, some weirdness with their theology that they need to, to work out. Now, just thinking a little bit more about this, though, right? There's a couple more details of this circumcision, of this covenant sign. Did you notice that the babies were circumcised on the eighth day? You ever wonder why the eighth day? What is the eighth day in the week of creation? Anybody know? It's not a trick question. It's not there, okay? There's seven days of creation. Creation week is done in seven days. So what does an eighth day signify? A new beginning. It represents the new creation. The old creation that was made in that seven days is cursed by sin, but God promises a new creation. You ever notice it's no accident that Christ rose on the eighth day? I mean, it's the first day of the week, but it's also the eighth day. Christ's resurrection inaugurated the new creation. How do we know that? What does Paul call everybody who's saved? A new creation in Christ. He inaugurates it. Now, the new creation is going to come in fullness later, but what day did he inaugurate it? The eighth day, which is the first day of the week. And what day is foreskin cut off and discarded? The eighth day to signify that new creation. So again, that's all there. And then notice how many times our text uh, mentions to Abraham uh, and Isaac that God will be fruitful and multiply them. Where do, we, where do we see that language? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 to Adam. Was that before the curse or after? It's before. God promised to be fruit, they would they'd be fruitful and they'd multiply. That is a perfect creation blessing. Okay? And by giving that same blessing to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob after the curse, as God saying the curse isn't going to stop what I'm doing, a new creation is coming. And then finally, Adam was supposed to rule, was he not? He was supposed to rule with dominion, but that was lost. What does God promise is going to come from Abraham? King. A king, okay, the king, Jesus, through whom dominion would be regained with the coming of a new creation. My point is, even in our text, there's a lot of new creation themes that are wrapped up in this text and all point to Christ, and they're all fulfilled through Christ. Remember, whenever you read the Old Testament, expect to find Jesus all over every page. 
And I think that's an important point. Why? Because there's a lot of people in our culture that think Christianity cannot be true because they, they, they've been told you can't trust the Bible. Some snooty person told them, oh, the Bible's got a bunch of errors in it. And then you're like, name one, and they can't. But the point is, they've been told this. They've been told the Bible's untrustworthy, but it's not. I mean, think about the stuff I just said, how all these parts of the Scripture, all these covenants written in different places by different authors are all fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. Man could not produce something like this. When you consider how it all points and leads to Jesus, and when you consider that it comes from an anthology of 66 books written over 1,600 years by 45 different authors on three different continents and three different languages, and most of these people didn't know each other, then how could a perfect plot emerge in this anthology? How could it? A perfect plot, a coherent storyline that all points to one guy, Jesus. And then he comes and fulfills all of this. And, and would an anthology, if it was the work of man, would it have hundreds of detailed prophecies that predict the future with perfect precision? No. But that's exactly what we have in the Bible. So no, you, you, this isn't filled with errors. You could trust it. This also presents a coherent position on all the major ethical and philosophical issues of life. Let me give you a contrast, and I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. There is a worldly anthology called The Great Western Classics. It was a human attempt to, to make an anthology. They took Western civilization's brightest thinkers, okay? And for 2,500 years, they took their stuff and just put it all together in an anthology. It goes from Plato all the way up to Frederick Nietzsche. Let me ask you, if you try to read all those volumes, is there a coherent worldview? Is there a coherent philosophy of ethics? Is there a unified storyline? Is there a single individual predicted who all these things are saying is, is, is pretty much summed up in this person? Do they give you prophecies that are fulfilled in history? No, none of that is there. The authors contradict each other left and right on many major issues, and there is no meta-narrative. There is no storyline that links them all together. Okay, And additionally, the Bible's filled with prophecies that have been fulfilled, hundreds of them, where anything the world puts together, they don't have that. So if there's any unbelievers here, stop your unbelief. Stop rejecting God. Believe on Jesus and be saved because this word is true and it's all about him and you're a sinner. And if you die in your sin, you will stand before God as your judge and you will be condemned. But if you go before his mercy seat, which is Jesus Christ, and ask him and say, God, I'm gonna turn from my sin and I believe on you, and you surrender to Jesus, you'll be saved. That's my exhortation to you. Do that if you don't know Christ already. And you could come up and, and talk to me after, and I could walk you through this more. Now, for the believer, I'm going to end this way. I say that this is one of those texts where the only real application is just trust God more. Trust his promises. Unlike Abraham, you could go read his promises every day. You could read them and believe them. And then you could live faithfully in light of them. Remember, faith without works is dead, so show your faith by what you do. Walk in the presence of God. Live faithfully for God. Show your loyalty to God by living for Him. He makes these promises and He fulfills them. So read them, believe them, and see your faith strengthened. See your faith increased. And then as your faith is increased, your faithfulness will increase. That's pretty much what I got. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to have one more uh, song and we're going to have the Lord's Supper. So let me pray real quick, and then I'll give you instructions concerning the Lord's Supper.